What's up, guys? Uh, Brian Wilson here with Life Unraveled Podcast. Going to be bringing you a new episode of History Unraveled. All right. Uh, I was uh, procrastinating doing this talk last night, um, and I'm doing it here at my office studio today. Um, and I'm super excited to be talking to you. I'm going to mention a little more in detail uh, about our topic here in a moment. Um, first, I just wanted to um, say a little bit about some stuff I got coming up. This talk is going to focus on the Assyrians. And again, I'm going to go in more depth on them, obviously. That's the topic of the talk. But uh, I'm also, um, you know, I'm pulling from a, a list of cultures from the ancient world. So I'm kind of doing a series of podcasts. I'm planning on doing... Uh, a real uh, detailed look into Egypt, Mesopotamia further, and I did a couple of um, basic just overview videos uh, over Egypt and Mesopotamia, sort of the Fertile Crescent, and I think that anybody help, uh, that anybody listening to this could be helped by listening to those two uh, to help you kind of understand where we're at. They've got some pictures and maps and um, got someone that's been uh, helping me with some editing to add, uh, add some... Uh, resources into the video feed if you're watching on YouTube. All right, so uh, planning on an Ancient World series of casts, um, planning on a series on the Bourbon Dynasty. This is the family that was in power uh, that was sitting on the French throne at the onset of the French Revolution. I've been working on a big project with that. And um, also 1968, a list of events. Been talking about that on the podcast for a while. This is kind of how I've, I've noticed, like, um, like I've been working on this Bourbon Dynasty research, and I've kind of always working on 1968 in the background because it's uh, a favorite topic of mine. But at the same time, you also... Um, <clears throat> I think that there's a lot of value and importance to catching what you're excited about and catching what um, I'm doing right now. And I just kind of got distracted and sidetracked by the Assyrians, right? Um, so who is this podcast going to be for? Yeah, you know, history students. You don't have to actually go to a university or a high school necessarily to be a history student, but everybody pretty much takes history courses at some point in their education, uh, through your student of mind, past, present, or future, this could definitely be of a benefit or an interest to you. Uh, any students taking any upper-level or intro-level history course in a college, obviously, it'll help you. AP history, it'll help you. Um, history nerds, intellectual people, adult people. I mean, this stuff blows my mind. Hopefully, it blows yours. And, um if you're taking any sort of a college course on Western Civilization One or anything like that, uh, I think this will be for you. I also think if you like listening to podcasts, this will be for you. Uh, two recommendations and podcasts I really enjoy listening to um, that go into history would be Danelli Bellelli's History on Fire and Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. So that's a couple places that... Um, you could go and look, and uh, I don't think either one of them have done uh, anything over the Assyrians. So without any further ado, uh, I'm going to get into uh, History Unraveled Episode 3, the Assyrians, history's cruelest people. So uh, I want to, that's my, my title, right? History's Coolest People. I want to get into a little uh, explanation about that, right? Uh, to this time, you could say that, 
right? The Mongols are cruel. The Nazis are cruel. Lots of people are cruel. Uh, you could even say downright evil if you like quantifying things in, uh, in those terms. I'm not necessarily calling the Assyrians evil, but they were a very cruel people. They used a lot of psychological warfare, and they were just masters of war. And I'm going to go uh, in detail on all that uh, later on the podcast. So that's kind of my reasoning for this title, History's Cruelest People. And I, I hope to go into some detail about the exploits of that and just let the audience be the judge of the Assyrians. Uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about my sources for this topic. Um, Obviously, I've seen a lot of documentaries, um, and that is not my primary source. I've also read uh, a lot of books. A book I used for my Western Civilization course called Beyond Boundaries. It's not my favorite book in the world, but it, it does the job, and it has a good narrative. It's a good secondary source kind of narrative. Um, so I was fortunate enough to get to take a professor, which is the greatest professor I've ever had. A lot of people who took this professor said that. He actually knew Elvis. It's not a big deal. His name was Professor David Krieger. Actually only had a master's degree like myself, and I got to take him for Civ One uh, when I was an undergraduate in college and a really special course close to my heart, a seminar in ancient Egypt. And I am drawing a lot from uh, sources I picked up through that course or from just the narrative and my notes and exposure to the topics I got. We definitely talked about the Assyrians in both those courses when I was in college. To that time, I had no idea who they were, right? And now um, they are one of the most interesting people that I cover when I teach Civ One. So I'm going to be drawing from my past uh, experience in learning about these people. And again, I like to point out that I didn't know who they were until um, I got to college. And there's a lot of speculation about whether or not they even existed uh, for a long time until we got into um, the archaeological excavations of their cap one of their capital cities of Nineveh in the mid-1800s. Then uh, when we were able to read cuneiform, that's when we really started being able to interpret the history. Okay. Also, I'll go into a little bit more about this. Um, this is going to be a reoccurring source. I get a lot of sources here from biblical accounts, right? Um, say, uh, you know, not just the Bible, also secondary discussions and talks and um, scholarly types who have done a lot of uh research into the biblical context. The Assyrians are mentioned numerous times in the Bible, and it's worth bringing out uh, and cross-examining some of those sources with the other sources we have, okay? Uh, one particular guy that I've listened to um, somewhat of a considerable amount would be a guy named Bruce Gore. Uh, he does a lot with timelines and trying to unite biblical context with the actual um, Assyrian timeline that we have. So I'll be discussing biblical history, and I do have a background growing up in church. Um, I was raised uh, Christian, I guess you could say, slapped the bass in the church band. Uh, but then I went on, I kind of stopped attending church when I was 19 and went on to get a master's degree in history. My undergraduate's in history and political science. also have a minor and a lot of courses in philosophy. So... This is my revision, assimilation, interpretation, and understanding of the numerous sources I've examined concerning the Assyrian people, 
uh, the Assyrians as an empire, their rise, their decline, their ultimate fall, and the impact and legacy that that culture left on the ancient world, especially the history of Mesopotamia. And I really just want to bring out all of the crossroads that the Assyrians have and come to with all of these other ancient cultures, which lived in and around Asia and Africa and the Middle East. So I'm going to go into just basically an overview of the Assyrians. They eventually become the largest known ancient empire uh, at their height until that date. Okay, so you you talk about some other Mesopotamian uh, cultures, uh, the Sumerians, you talk about the Egyptians, and then pretty much it's the Assyrians. Okay. Um, they begin to form around 2500 BC. That's when we're really going to start talking about them. And uh, the Assyrians as a culture lasts for around 1900 years. Okay, so here's some scaling on that. The United States, currently uh, just a little over 240 years old. So the Assyrians as a culture lasted almost eight times longer than the United States has been a thing. Right. So they are um, located in present day northern Iraq. Okay. If you look on the map now, Assyria is not there. Right. Syria is, but Assyria is not. Um, Syria was, uh, you know, uh, definitely uh, a culture in the ancient world as well. But the Assyrians, they held on to a small homeland of about 5,000 square miles. And uh, this Assyrian territory, uh, in addition to northern Iraq, also included parts of northwestern Iran and northeastern Syria, right, and uh, parts of Anatolia as well. First of all, these people lived as peaceful farmers in the upper Tigris River Valley. But this geographic area uh, was a hotbed for chaos and turmoil, uh, the Assyrians were constantly being attacked by these warlike, nomadic hill people who would steal their harvests. This happens in this, uh, a story to- told early on in their history. And the survivors emerged as a toughened, aggressive, and expansionistic culture. And eventually they will go on to form the Assyrian Empire and they kind of become a group of warlike farmers. I remember uh, when I was taking uh, that seminar in ancient Egypt, I believe it was, it may have been Civ One, but my professor um, <clears throat> kind of started off talking about them being a group of peaceful farmers in the Upper Tigris, and then they were being attacked, and then they became a group of warlike farmers. Uh, it's funny joke at the time, you know, maybe if you're not into funny history jokes that aren't that funny, but it's funny to me. Uh, so uh, Syrian history. It's uh, divided pretty much, scholars put it into four distinct periods, and I'm going to talk about all four of the periods. Uh, The first one we'll get into after this overview is called the Early Assyrian Period. It's a period of a little less than uh, 500 years that lasts 2500 to 2025 B.C., this is uh, when the city of Asher begins to elevate in the region to the status of a city-state. This is also when the Assyrians are subject to the Akkadian rulers and uh, people in power like Sargon of Akkad. 
the old Assyrian Empire, um, it is going to cover from 2025 to 1750. Here you see the emergence of a monarchy and a new capital city. The Middle Assyrian Empire, 1365 to 1020 BC. This occurs at the same time as the Pharaoh Akhenaten in Egypt. He's the Pharaoh who changed the uh, religion of the Egyptians from poly- polytheism to monotheism. May have just done this as a rebellion against the cult of Amun. Uh, I'll talk about them a little bit in this podcast, uh, but this is sort of at the time when the new kingdom in Egypt appears to be flourishing. This uh, Middle Assyrian Empire is also a time when the Assyrians are breaking free from the rule of an obscure ancient group called the Mitanni. Okay. Uh, next up, we have the Neo Assyrian Empire. This is really when Assyria is uh, they're at their height. They're the scariest, um, and this is. Uh, 911 through 605 BC. So it's since 2500 that this culture, until 911 BC, that they've evolved to their height. Okay. So this period of their history is seen as the first time that any civilization really obtained the status of empire. Now we talk about some other empires uh, in, in world history, like the Egyptian empire or uh, the Sumerians and the Akkadians, really the Akkadians are the first people to conquer all of Mesopotamia. And when they did that, the Assyrians were, um, you know, in, in the neighborhood at the time and, and were affected by that. So um, let's just make some uh, other sort of uh, overviewing statements. Uh, it, at some point in the history of the Assyrian people, they eventually started winning battles. And they eventually realized that pouring in on any opposition they had and torturing their enemies would make their victories faster and make their impression more effective. Genghis Khan took a very similar approach in how he dealt with people that he was going to war with. So this become, uh, these people become in this time uh, by later on in the new Assyrian Empire period, they become known as some of history's cruelest people. And that is just like, kind of why I went with that title again, is just you, when you research them, cruel, 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 it just keeps coming up, right? So it is kind of a, a good working title. Um, they're infamously known, among other things. I'll kind of have a, a uh, segue on psychological warfare and some, some of their military tactics, but they were infamously known for skinning their enemies alive, among many other atrocities. So eventually this group of warlike farmers are able to take over, like the Akkadians before them, all of Mesopotamia. And they eventually also develop the most excellent military fighting force that the ancient world has ever seen. Uh, So some other uh, mentions I've talked uh, mentioned previously is a, a source uh, that I was kind of consulting would be the uh, biblical context and the biblical sources of where um, the Assyrians are mentioned, right? And with that, um, according to the book of Genesis, I will give you kind of a uh, kind of an overview of where I guess you could say their creation myth comes from, right? I'm not saying that it's not true, so don't. Uh, nobody uh, freak out over there. 
but uh, according to the Bible, here is where the Assyrians come from. So they have kind of an origin in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And according to Genesis chapter 10, the Assyrians come from one of the sons of Noah. Okay, so Noah's who's associated with the biblical flood story. He has three sons who settle Mesopotamia after the flood. All right. Now, these three sons, uh, one of them is named Shem. Okay, so uh, in the account of Genesis 10, Noah's son Shem has a son named Asher. And Asher is who founded the lands of the Assyrians and the city state of Ashur after the flood or the deluge, okay? And that's A-S-S-U-R is the name of the city, okay? Uh, So the Assyrian Empire and the people as a a distinct cultural group are mentioned over 130 times in the Bible. Uh, And just kind of likening to some things I've said previously, the prophet Isaiah of Jerusalem said this of the Assyrians, their arrows are sharpened and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves are like flint. Their chariot wheels like the whirlwind. Their growling is like that of a lion. So kind of some chilling accounts. uh, Anytime you're hearing uh, somebody else that is uh, going up or has had contact with the Assyrians talking about them, it, um, they describe them in kind of this way. And Isaiah is somebody I'll mention a little bit more. He's a prophet in Jerusalem, and I'll kind of uh, make mention of uh, some prophets as we move on uh, down in our discussion here. So uh, I want to make a couple other remarks about uh, some cultural achievements of the Assyrians uh, and uh, sort of some things to do with the dark side of the Assyrians. I remember that being a, uh, a heading in my notes from when I uh, first was exposed to this, uh, this group of people, right? So um, let's, let's talk about some advances that they made. They made a lot of advances in astronomy, okay? They did this because uh, they worshiped the gods of Mesopotamia. That was the religion... Um, and they believed that if they studied heavenly bodies and their movements, that they could interpret the influence that they would have on the affairs of human beings and their daily life. So this leads to advances in astrology through scientific observation. Uh, Assyrian priests had produced relatively accurate circular diagrams called astrolabes that showed positions of constellations, stars, planets, And um, these were all calculated over the course of a year. Uh, By 600 B.C., Assyrian astronomers could predict solstices, equinoxes, and lunar eclipses. Uh, This is one thing that kind of always stood out to me. And uh, again, these are just some some general overviewing uh, topics that, uh, again, I pulled from, from some of my sources. Um, In addition to needlessly torturing their conquered subjects... Uh, women are sort of taken advantage of by Assyrian men. Uh, by Assyrian men, so uh, the men in Assyria could beat their wives as long as the stick was no thicker than their wrists. See, okay, uh, you know that's pretty thick. I'm my wrist is thick. All right, maybe you have uh, a smaller statured husband and you're lucky. I don't know, like one of those people who you can put, you know, your your C-grip of your hand all the way around the wrist like I can do with my wife, that's a small wrist. But still, if you do that, you make a circle with your pointy finger and your thumb, 
I don't want to get hit with a stick that big. Come on now. So, um, also, here's another thing. No way for a woman to be granted a divorce. When we see divorce is a thing in the ancient world, uh, but there's no way for a woman to uh, have any rights in, uh, in being granted a divorce. So, a man in the Assyrian uh, culture, however, could say, I divorce thee three times. Three times. And it's over. All right? I kind of joke about uh, this with my students when I go over this, but like, I mean, like, what, imagine you're you're having a, in a, a you're in a fight with your spouse in your Assyrian household, and you're arguing as as uh, spouses do from time to time, and in your arguing, uh, you say, "I divorce thee," just twice though, not three times, just as kind of like a threat. Maybe this is a you know something that went on. All we can do is interpret. Uh, <laughs> What, what it might have been like under these conditions. But I doubt, um, I doubt the way that I read when I am reading into the Assyrians and how they treated their women that any of the women were doing things like arguing back with their husbands. So uh, one cultural and long-lasting legacy that women get from the Assyrians is in uh, Assyrian life, uh, women were forced to cover their faces with a veil when they were in public. And it's a long-lasting cultural legacy of the Assyrians that's still uh, in being practiced in 2019. So um, the Assyrian uh, Empire lasted until 612 BC with the destruction and fall of Nineveh. This is when the Assyrian Empire really ends, but it's by that time that they have sort of achieved uh, status is the most brutal empire uh, in military on the block, okay? So the Assyrian military, um, some other things, sort of the dark side of, of their um, presence in the Neo-Assyrian Empire, so we're talking 9-11 through 6-12, right? That's when the, the Assyrians officially end, and we'll talk about that more in depth, but... <clears throat> By the new Assyrian Empire, the army had become the most excellent military in the ancient world. Uh, they used iron weapons, which they had imported from the Hittites. Their arrowheads were made of iron. Uh, Isaiah had mentioned their arrowheads. Uh, their spearmen, archers, and cavalrymen were equipped with uh, <clears throat> both armor and weapons made of iron. And the Assyrians were the first major power to employ regular cavalry units rather than charioteers, as a part of their main uh, strike force. They were known as the cruelest army in the ancient world, and they tortured and skinned their victims, oftentimes alive. They had the best chariot corps in the entire ancient world, in addition to uh, well-trained cavalry units. Uh, they had an... Uh, a corps of army engineers, which was also the best in the ancient world. They were excellent at taking walled cities by siege. And we'll go into that a little bit more, some different sieges which the Assyrian people engage in. But we do know uh, through depictions and archaeological evidence that the Assyrians had siege equipment, that they employed things like a battering ram, scaling ladders. We know that the battering rams are plated and made with iron um, and that they would employ the usage of also of siege towers with archers at the top. Uh, these towers would 
be built to be level with the height of the enemy walls, and um, this would be something that the Assyrians would do to help with uh, the siege of a city that they were trying to attack. So new or neo-Assyrian kings uh, used the Assyrian military to strike fear into the heart of all who opposed their rule. And that's where we get into a little bit of the dark side of the psychological warfare associated with the Assyrians. Okay, so the Assyrians engaged in all manner of atrocities. They decapitated the heads of rulers that they conquered, hung them in trees, they impaled people, they uh, ground up the bones of people that were captured, flayed people alive, put people's eyes out. There were just a lot of really brutal displays of torture by the Assyrians that struck fear into the heart of anybody who would oppose them. And these are the kind of exploits that lead them to being referred to as history's cruelest people. And it lead to Nineveh, their capital at the time that they fall, is being called the bloody city by people who lived in that time. So now we're going to talk about the early Assyrian period. Okay, this occurs between the years 2500 when they first start appearing on the scene, it's 2500 BC to 2025 BC. Okay, so before they formed um, an empire, before they became the Neo Assyrian Empire, they were somewhat of a regional um, power, cultural group, Mesopotamia city state called Asher. So uh, during the early period, right, uh, Asher was a city-state and was named after the patron god of the city, Asher. This is depicted as a war god and a sun god, depending on what time uh, that you're discussing. And uh, as I mentioned in passing previously, that the Assyrians worshipped a lot of, we see syncretism here, they worshipped a lot of the gods that everybody in the area was worshipping. So Asher is where the word Assyrian comes from, A-S-S-U-R-A-S-S-Y-R-I-N, Asher, Assyrian. They have kind of the same, same root. Um, so again, don't get that confused with Syria. We're talking about Assyria. There have been um, previous dynasties that had existed in Mesopotamia, and all of these are definitely worthy of their own individual podcasts and I plan on really kind of rounding out um, a lot of this Mesopotamian history to kind of fill in the blanks I've kind of skipped these as major topics before now but you, you know we had the Sumerians we had the Akkadians this is Sargon of Akkad and then the third dynasty of Ur right so these are all things that are occurring uh in powerful groups that are gaining province prominence in and around mesopotamia at the time that the uh assyrians are also um also coming to prominence okay so when the city of ur falls the central authority in mesopotamia is lost Okay, and this is when the Assyrians really start to uh, exert their dominance in the northern part of Mesopotamia. Uh, there are um, several Assyrian kings I'm going to talk about. The first Assyrian kings date to around 2450 BC. There is an Assyrian kings list. I will mention more uh, here in just a moment. Okay, and um, 
the this kind of brings us into our next uh, period of history, which is the uh, when the Akkadian Empire begins to form. Okay, this is uh, an empire that forms in the region sort of 2200s, 2230s BC, which would last until 2154 BC. Okay, the Akkadians from Agad or Akkad, Akkadia, are a cultural group that uh, eventually take over all of Mesopotamia. So in doing so, obviously, they've uh, have taken over the Assyrians. Okay, so this brings us to the old uh, Assyrian Empire period, right, which comes... Uh, <clears throat> after the Akkadian period, okay? So the Assyrian, the old Assyrian Empire lasts 2000 BC to 1365, right? So after Ur falls, uh, the Assyrians, they kind of go into an intermediate period for around 200 years. This is around 2000 BC. Uh, The south is being dominated by Isin and Larsa, these are a couple of city-states, and the north is being dominated by Ashuna and Asher. So the Assyrians are one of the dominant presence uh, people in the region that are establishing a presence. They're establishing themselves as a empire and as a trading, um, uh, is in, in the trading and commerce uh, sort of activities that are going on there. In 1900... This is when Asher begins really uh, evolving as a trading empire, right? Uh, they start to establish trading ties with the Hittites, okay? It's around this same time that Amorite rulers uh, replaced Sumerian rulers. So after the Amorites rise to prominence in the region, the Assyrians start to build up their presence more and more and more from Asher, We talked about Asher being added to the Akkadian Empire by Sargon. And um, also, this is a time when we see archaeologically they start to build up the walls of Asher and focus, again, heavily on trade and commerce and establish a lot of uh, trade routes and commercial ties with other groups in the region. Uh, So... The Assyrians, you know, withstood uh, the Akkadian Empire and Sargon of Akkad and being uh, a part of a group that was all conquered. And then um, there's a interesting ruler to discuss. His name is Shamshi Adad, uh, and he rules from 1809 to 1776. Okay. We believe that he's an Amorite prince. So uh, the Amorites are established at Babylon. This is where we get the story of Hammurabi's code. Uh, this is around this same time this is going on, okay? It's thought that Shamshi Adad might have had uh, family ties in Babylon. Uh, the king's list of the Assyrians may have been invented by Shamshi Adad to uh, establish his reign. So um, there are 17 kings mentioned in the Assyrian king's list uh, who live in tents. So it's almost very... Uh, Genghis Khanish, he um, establishes himself as uh, ruler of all of those who dwell in felt tents during his reign, which comes much later, but um, interesting uh, parallel there. So um, there are over a hundred and 
well over 100 different kings mentioned that ruled uh, from the early period to the new empire. Okay. We know Shamshi Adad uh, unified several tribes. He seized the city of Asher and then began using it as a military base and springboard to conquer and unite northern Mesopotamia. We know that even in his time, he was a master of siegecraft and wielded a large and elite, well-trained army of soldiers. So um, he conquered the city of Nineveh, which would be a future capital for the Assyrians. This is around at this time in the ancient world. And he eventually unified most most all of northern Mesopotamia under an Assyrian dynasty. This is really the beginnings of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, during his reign, Shamshi-Adad built many temples, uh, and instead of raising taxes, these, uh, this temple building system was a uh, system of taxation. Right? Uh, we see during his reign, he also rebuilt the temple to Ishtar. This is a major Mesopotamian deity uh, that is being worshipped at this time. And uh, we see that Shamshi-Adad is a capable administrator. He allowed uh, territories he conquered to maintain elements of their culture as long as they served as vassals and would um, come when called upon to help uh, carry out the Assyrian agenda. We think that Shamshi-Adad altered the king's list to make his reign seem more legitimate, right? When we look at the Assyrian king's list, we it, it goes kind of all the way back to Sargon of Akkad, so... We also see him um, reestablish the Assyrian capital from Asher to Shubat Enlil. Right? Enlil is a, an Akkadian uh, deity, very popular in Mesopotamian culture, and um, is one of the deities that is uh, heavily associated with the flood story in the Epic of Gilgamesh. After the death of Shamshi Adad, the early Assyrian Empire had a weak line of rulers, and uh, the Amorites are prominent in the region. So um, in 1770 B.C., the Syrians are conquered by the Amorites. And this is sort of the beginnings of old Babylon. There's a section in my Civ courses where I get into uh, uh, the Neo-Babylonians, the New Babylonians. And Babylon is definitely a highly uh, revered city in this part of the ancient world at this time and for a long time. So, um, so many topics within just what we discussed so far that could be their own podcast. Uh, you know, Akhenaten, the uh, Egyptian New Kingdom, Old Babylon. Uh, there's there's a lot of history inside of just the Assyrians and, and that a lot of cultural groups that the Assyrians impacted and in a great way that are they're all worthy of their individual podcasts and those cultural groups. And that's sort of my goal with this uh, History Unravel podcast, to be able to get that information out in a, in a narrative form uh, that makes sense to people. So the Assyrians maintained independence between 1700 and 1500 B.C., but then they are conquered by uh, a group called the Mitanni. The Mitanni are a warlike group of people that were located to the east of the Euphrates in a loosely organized state in northern Syria. These people do not show up in the Bible, um, and they were for a time considered a great power around this time we're discussing. 
They came into conflict with the Hittites, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians. It's really, we see that after the fall of the Akkadians and then also um, the Amorites, uh, that the Assyrians really start to exert their dominance in Mesopotamia. And they're kind of rivaled by the Amorites early on in doing so. This brings us next to the Middle Assyrian Empire. This is 1365 to 1208 B.C., okay? I'm going to be discussing a few rulers uh, throughout this time period as well as uh, kind of some periods of decline and recovery which lead us into the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which is probably the coolest period of their history to discuss. So their first ruler we're going to discuss is named Ashur-Ubalat I. Okay, he rules from 1365 to 1330 B.C. This is when Assyria becomes more of a region than just a city-state, right? It's when they start to establish more colonies, when they're becoming more warlike. Uh, Asher is prominent during this time. Again, that's their chief deity of that city. And we see, just like this ruler we're talking about, Asher Ubalat, we see Asher show up in uh, names from the king li- king's list of the Assyrians frequently. Uh, again, Asher is considered to be a war god and, and oftentimes depicted as a sun god. And... Um, <clears throat> It's during the Middle Assyrian Empire and the rule of Ashurbalit that um, the Assyrians joined the Hittites in attacking the Batani, okay? uh, particularly a uh, Hittite king named Subalumus. He is um, mentioned in connection with the Egyptians. I'll kind of go into that a little bit, but again, it's more of a story for another Time It's kind of a, a better story that's uh, examined from the perspective of the Egyptians, in my uh, opinion. But Supalumus, king of the Hittites, is uh, influential and does cross paths with the Assyrians. So Supalumus forms an alliance with the Assyrians. The Assyrians and the Hittites attack the Mitanni on both sides, the Hittites from the north, the Assyrians from the south. And this is when we really start to see the earliest aggressive formations of the Syrian Empire. And we see Ashurbalat establish himself as a powerful and independent ruler who raises the standards of Assyrian brutality. This is where we see uh, the Assyrians skinning people alive and accounts of that happening, the piling up of skulls of conquered peoples, and many other horrific atrocities that they were hated for in the ancient world. It's eventually this type of brutal treatment that is going to bring the people of the ancient world together against them. There are minor kings in power after Ashurbalat from 1330 to 1308 B.C. The next uh, notable king to discuss is King Adad-Nirari I. He's in power from 1308 to 1275, okay? And there's a great battle that takes place uh, during his, uh, after, um, it's just, uh, he reigns after the fact the battle took place. So the Battle of Kadesh is what I'm talking about, and that's uh, 
a place to kind of plug Super Loomis, right? And I'll, again, it come a point when I will do a podcast over, you know, the 19th Dynasty or the New Kingdom or both where I talk uh, a little bit more in detail about the Battle of Kadesh. But this is an international battle. and stated 1276 B.C., uh, so right at the end of the reign of uh, Adad Narari. And it occurs between the Hittites and Ramesses II, Pharaoh in Egypt. So both sides go home and sort of leave that area of Kadesh unprotected after they fight to a draw, right? After that, Ramesses kind of goes back home and focuses on administration and building. But the Assyrians... Um, they start to build up their presence there, right? So the Assyrians, this this uh, undefended strip where the Egyptians and the Hittites had done battle in uh, northern Syria, this puts uh, kind of opens that up to the Assyrians coming in, okay? So Adad Narari sweeps in and claims this area, and now the Assyrians are starting to make their presence more and more known particularly um, to the culture of the Israelites, right? And um, we'll talk about how those cultures intersect, and that's another, um, another podcast I would definitely be doing is the, uh, the, the Hebrew culture and, and their people, the United Hebrew Monarchy. It's a topic that I cover in my courses that uh, I really enjoy teaching. And, um, you know, these moves that the Assyrians are making put them in the neighborhood of uh, and just to the north of the Israelites. So the Hittites and the Egyptians are both worried about the growing presence of the Assyrians. Okay, there's a Hittite ruler named Hattusheli, and um, <clears throat> Hattusheli II and Ramesses II, uh, who had previously been sort of matched against each other at Kadesh, they sort of resist the encroaching Assyrians. And a growing threat of the Assyrians starts to become sort of a prominent uh, discussion and paranoia on everybody's mind in the region, okay? All this is sort of playing out in the reign of a ruler named Shalmaneser I. Shalmaneser is in power from 17, or I'm sorry, from 1275 to 1244 B.C. And... We see a tablet from his reign that is sort of a peace treaty, okay? This occurs four years after Kadesh, and this uh, tablet shows us uh, an alliance formed between the Hittites and the Egyptians. Uh, it was discovered in 1902 and is found housed in uh, the uh, Istanbul Archaeological uh, Museum. After the I, we have a ruler named Tukulti Nunurta, or Nunurta. He uh, reigns from 1244 to 1208, and he is a ruler who is unable to hold on to these previous gains made by the earlier kings of Assyria. And this sends Assyria during a period of decline, which happens from 1208 to, at the end of his reign, to 911 B.C., Okay, this period of Syrian decline, um, this is sort of a, uh, an era of history that really becomes sort of a dark age, right? Nothing is really heard from uh, the Mycenaeans, the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. Really, this whole 
Middle East and, you know, Fertile Crescent area goes dark for about 250 years, okay? Uh, We do know that this is a time when the Israelites and the Hebrew people are flourishing, and um, one person who reigns during this time that um, will be, uh, you know, be... Same name as a later king from the Neo-Assyrian period is Tiglath uh, Pileser or Pileser the First. He reigns from um, eleven fifteen to ten seventy seven. It's the greatest Assyrian king from this era, and this is a time period which corresponds with the formation of the United Hebrew Monarchy. Okay, so um, this will be again. I've mentioned this already, but this will be a podcast in and of itself. Uh, over the United Hebrew Monarchy, and um, I will plan on going over this topic soon, in which I'll cover Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, 12 tribes of Israel, all the way to pretty much Hezekiah's tunnel and the Babylonian captivity. So kind of keep an eye out for that. It's part of the courses I teach and a part of the uh, history I'm interested in. So um, I really love working with uh, a lot of these cultures. I did a writing... um, assignment where I wrote a large paper over placing the Israelites in Egypt when I was in uh, my undergraduate. Okay, so uh, it's definitely um, a serious interest of mine when it comes to historical topics to discuss. So the um, Assyrians enter a period of recovery where they start to rebound in the region or are going to form the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and uh, this occurs from 911 to 746 B.C. The Assyrians become the dominant power in the region and a force to be reckoned with for the next several hundred years, so from 911 all the way until the fall of Nineveh. Uh, It'll be until the rise of the Medes and the Chaldeans in the region and Neo-Babylonians and hard-fought struggles with those groups before the Assyrians are going anywhere. So, um, by the reign of, uh, by this period of Syrian recovery, and by the reign of a guy named Adad Narari II, the United Hebrew Monarchy had split. Adad Narari II rules from 911 to 891 BC. And he begins this period of Assyrian recovery and starts expanding southward in Mesopotamia uh, and into Babylon. After his reign, he's succeeded by Tekilti Nanorta II from 891 to 884. He consolidates Assyrian gains in the region, builds Assyrian power, rebuilt the walls of the capital of Ashur, and um, then we have the next ruler, Ashurnazirpal II. He's in power from 884 to 859. He is a very infamously brutal ruler who tortured his enemies, uh, started traditions of uh, terrifying enemies into submission. Uh, He respected Babylon. He didn't didn't really do a lot of things to uh, uh, damage relations with uh, Babylon. In his reign, uh, Ashurnazirpal does expand into northern Syria, and he also establishes some sort of peace with the Assyrians, which is probably in some form, uh, form of them paying him tribute payments. We start to see that become a dominant um, sort of mob tactic by the Assyrians to um, extract tribute from conquered peoples. 
From 858 to 824, uh, we have a great warrior king in this period of Assyrian recovery named Shalmaneser III. He has 31 campaigns in 35 years. He did not uh, conquer or attack Babylon. He had campaigns in Syria in 853 B.C. Uh, There's been a black obelisk discovered. It was discovered in 1846 A.D. It is the earliest artifact that has a Hebrew ruler inscribed on it. This obelisk uh, depicts the uh, king of Israel, a guy named King Jehu, or Yehu, is paying tribute to Shalmaneser III. He is depicted as bowing to the Assyrian ruler in submission. So we see this sort of a uh, is a reoccurring theme when we examine uh, the sources from this time. So there's an outbreak of civil war in Assyria during Shalmaneser III's reign. And Shalmaneser III uh, begins to set his sights on um, the kingdom of Judah and Israel also during this time. After Shalmaneser III, we have um, another Shamshi Adad. Okay, by this time we've got all the way to Shamshi Adad the fourth. He's in power from 824 to 811, and he had to settle this problem with civil war and some of these Assyrian, like I guess you could say, colonies or subjugated areas that are rebelling. So once he gets Assyria back under control, he becomes. Um, a violent force to be reckoned with in the area. He puts down rebellions like people before him with brutal tactics. Uh, Adad Narari III, a lot of similar names when you look at these kings lists, right? And I'm just pulling some kings that are talked about, you know, in different points of history that do relevant things that kind of contribute to the narrative. Again, there's over 100 kings, a lot of people to talk about, and I'm talking about maybe a dozen or so. So um, you have um, Adad Narari III, okay? He is in power from 811 to 783. He takes the Assyrians to the very brink of becoming this neo-Assyrian empire. He continues this imposition of a system of tribute on Syria, Anatolia, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, and the Israelites, all powers in the region and are all paying tribute and submitting to Adad Narari III. Okay. Uh, then we have Shalmaneser the Fourth. Shalmaneser the Fourth. He's the son of Adad Narari. There's going to be three sons of Adad Narari um, the Third that uh, we were just talking about that come in after. Adad Narari III. Shalmaneser IV is one of them. He's one of the sons, and we don't know a lot about his reign other than he inherited the Assyrian Empire. Probably it's his greatest height to any date that we've talked about previously. But he's remembered as a weak ruler. Um, the preceding violence of the Syrians is um, not evident as something that he is continuing on in his reign. Uh, the second son of Adad Narari III, very little known about him. The third son, um, the, or the guy, so uh, these are different names. Uh, this, uh, the second son of Adad Narari III is named Asher Dayan II, 772 to 775. Again, we don't know very much about him. Now, the third son of Adad Narari III, he is the third ruler we don't know a whole lot about in this line, right? And um, he is killed in a palace revolution in 745 B.C. 
And this is what really shifts the tides in bringing about the formation of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Okay, so I'm going to start off kind of talking about the Neo-Assyrian Empire. This will be like our last major topic of history to get into. This lasts from 745 B.C. to 612 B.C. And it's during this time, a little earlier actually, and ends a little bit before the Neo-Assyrians end, that we see the rise of a Nubian dynasty in Egypt. Okay, this is the 25th dynasty. And it begins to form just a little bit before the Neo-Assyrian Empire. This is when the political kingdom of Cush is founded uh, between the Nubians and the Cushites. Nubia had been treated previously as sort of an Egyptian colony, there were two temples to Amun that were built close to the fourth cataract. One was built by Tutmosi III, the other had been built by Ramesses II. These priests of Amun are very powerful here at this uh, location of the fourth cataract. There's a sacred mountain called Yabel Barkal, B A R K A L, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and eventually, uh, these Nubian chieftains realized that they could form an alliance with the chiefs of Amun and establish political dominance. So uh, the capital of Kush is established at Miro on the fourth cataract. This town has about 25,000 citizens. It's a very industrialized city. There's more iron ore um, deposits here than all the rest of Africa, and they spun and wove more cotton cloth which is very high demand uh, for the priest of Amun. Uh, and uh, this is they're producing more cloth than anyone else in the region at this time. Also, another thing is there's more pyramids at Miro than, in, than all of the rest of Egypt, uh, but they're much smaller. Uh, they're, they're steeper, uh, but they're, uh, like, uh, they have um, steeper angles from top to bottom, but they're not as tall, not as wide, not as megalithic and vast. Um, as some of the other stone structures we see around um, Giza and uh, in Lower Egypt. The first six kings of Miro are unnamed, um, but we know they ruled by divine right. The kingdom becomes very economically dependent during um, this time, and the kingdom of Cush is also um, trading with the Egyptians in Lower Egypt. So there's still um, sort of a dynasty that exists there, but there's also a lot of fighting going on with these Egyptian nobles, as we typically see any time there is uh, sort of a downturn. And definitely the um, we're sort of in a period of downturn after um, the New Kingdom and the Ramesside dynasty is, is sort of out, right? So... Um, <clears throat> Some things that the um, this Nubian dynasty exported, iron, cotton cloth, ebony wood, ivory. There's a lot of elephants uh, in this part of the country. They imported olive oil, pottery, ceramics, wine, musical instruments like trumpets, drums, flutes, harps, and other stringed instruments. The kings of Kush uh, also put together a well-conditioned army. Uh, they're sort of intimidating bunch. They wear, uh, their soldiers would wear lion skins or leopard skins from the head to the tail. Uh, and they would carry long laminated bow, bows like the Hyksos had carried before them. This is a, a cultural group from the Levant or uh, the area of Palestine where um, that had 
brought a lot of technologies into Egypt, okay, uh, like iron-tipped arrows. Uh, they also employed the use of a javelin. This is a long spear, which was iron-tipped and made of parts of antelope horn. And um, also their soldiers painted their bodies with uh, white chalk and uh, also red. And this mixed with the lion and leopard skins plus some screaming would definitely be um, something that could strike fear into the heart of your enemy. Okay. Now, <clears throat> there are some, some different kings that rule during this Nubian dynasty. Okay. And I'm going to kind of go into those. And this is a period of history that there are some uncertainties on, right? Um, I'll kind of go into as many sources as I can on this, and hopefully it can paint you a picture. Now, I am someone inside of the camp that does not necessarily agree with all of the evidence that dates the Sphinx as being um, attributed to uh, one of the great builder pharaohs of the old kingdom. Uh, it's more my theory that he probably restored or repaired it and that um, this had gone on several times. An interesting theory to me, and this is uh, put forth by John Anthony West and Robert Schock, I just kind of have heard other people elaborate on this, is that the head of the Sphinx may have been recarved multiple times, right? And we see here really a more black African... Um, presence in these Nubian and Kushite pharaohs, right? And there's a theory that the face on the, on the Sphinx may be a black African pharaoh, right? So it's, it's a theory of mine that the Sphinx could have been recarved multiple times and it could have been recarved in this era, okay? Now, not all of these Nubian kings are named, but the first one that we know really anything about is a guy named Kashka. He is in power from 760 to 747, launches a major military expedition to uh, Thebes. There at Thebes, he's welcomed by the priest of Amun. So this is kind of the story of this dynasty, is that they are allied with the priest of Amun to kind of um, stay in power. And the priest of Amun believed that Kashka could help them overcome the fighting that was going on in the Nile Delta between these powerful Egyptian nobles. Uh, some of them had uh, even attacked Thebes previously, so this is, uh, this is an issue. However, Kashka returns his capital of Miro, and um, he does leave a very strong and effective government to his son, Pi, P-I-Y-E. He rules from 747 to 716, famous warrior king, expanded the Kushite army uh, through launching a military expedition into Lower Egypt, captures Memphis, the famous old kingdom capital, and he gradually defeated these Delta nobles and defeated also a Libyan nobleman uh, who, had who had taken the title of pharaoh. He also established client kings who were expected to enforce laws and collect taxes, all right? Um, sort of royal governors, so to speak, I guess you could say. Uh, Pi had gained control over the entire Nile River Valley during his reign. He took two titles that are um, titles taken when there is a lot of order and stability in Egypt. These titles are Pharaoh and Lord of the Two Lands, so the two lands being Upper and Lower Egypt. He administered his kingdom from Miro and is succeeded by his son, Shabaka. 
Okay. Now it is possible that there is another son of Pi who co-reigned with Shabaka named Shabitku. Right now, uh, whether Shabaka and Shabitku were brothers, whether Shabitku ruled before Shabaka, or whether they co-reigned, there's a lot of confusion on that. Okay, uh, Shabitku's reign is dated from 714 to 705, and Herodotus writes about Shabitku being, uh, or he writes about a priest of Ta, an Egyptian god named Sethos that defeated the Assyrians through divine intervention. And it's thought that this may be Shabitku. Um, but we're going to go more into that and look at some sources uh, when we get a little further into uh, the story on the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So it's possible that Shabaka and Shabitku maybe co-ruled Upper and Lower Egypt, or maybe uh, there's theories that Shabitku reigned before and reigned after. Okay, so just want to throw that out there, but... One of the sons of Pi is Shabaka, and he is shown as reigning after uh, Pi's reign is over in 716, and he reigns till 702. We see that he's trained by his father, but he's a very different type of king. He's focused on administration. He moves the capital to Thebes. Uh, This is a strategic move. It's more centralized, and it's also more of a stronghold of the cult of Amun. And you remember this is sort of how these Nubian kings have gotten in power is by aligning with this uh, priesthood of Amun and this, this cult of Amun. We see Shabaka save a lot of the history um, through ordering that old papyrus documents be recopied during his reign. We see that he's a builder. He constructed temples to Amun and repaired many old temples. Also, as a patron of the arts and encouraged painting, sculpting, craftsmanship, and uh, subsidized these activities by the government, with the government. He is not a very warlike king and kept his kingdom prosperous and at peace. We know that he was aware of the growing threat of the Assyrians and of their interest in Egypt. Right? Uh, we know that uh, Shabak is succeeded by his nephew, Taharqa, from 690 to 664. And this uh, king flees from invading Assyrians and is the last known ruler from this dynasty. Okay, so um, I will mention a story of Shabitku uh, a little bit more uh, in depth, but that gives us some sort of background info for the Neo-Assyrian Empire and how they are going to uh, this uh, dynasty, this 25th dynasty, is going to give way to the 26th dynasty and is going to be affected by the Assyrians as they set their sights on Egypt. So this brings us to what it can be seen as the founder of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And that's a guy we've mentioned uh, in name previously, not in uh, number, but that is King Tiglath-Pileser III. Could be called Tiglath-Pileser, but Pileser, Shalabaneser, these seem to be some pronunciations, but I kind of joke with my students a lot. Uh, when I'm teaching a class and it's a weird name that you've never heard before, and it's a written test. But if you're listening to this, you're probably not taking a test. Uh, but if you are, Tiglath Pileser III is an important person to remember. Okay, um, 
He reigns from the mid-700s B.C. until about 728, 727 B.C. He can be seen as the founder of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And he is going to deal with some revolts early in his reign. He's uh, having issues with media in Babylon. Uh, these are both to the east. And um, he also, um, in dealing with those revolts, and this is kind of a beginning of a <coughs> series of revolts that the Assyrians have to deal with, and is probably a response to their brutal tactics, right? A lot of people in the region just rebel against the Assyrians. So um, then he launches his first Syrian campaign where he invades the Levant and seeks submission from both Syria and Israel. And um, he gets both of these nations to submit. Uh, Reason the second in Syria and Menatham in Israel both end up paying tribute to Tiglath-Pileser. Uh, he did not continue southward to the kingdom of Judah, uh, and uh, we do know that um, <clears throat> he was uh, interested in the copper mines of the Hittites. Uh, and uh, that is sort of, uh, you know, some, some high points of his reign. Now, also um, during this time, a guy named Jotham, J-O-T-H-A-M, is reigning in Judah from 750 to 735 B.C., Okay, this is also the time in which the prophet Isaiah is living in Jerusalem and is coming to prominence and um, is notable during the reign of Jotham as a Hebrew prophet. Now, prophets are an interesting uh, group of people, I guess you could call them. Uh, the Hebrews had prophets, right? The Old Testament's about the minor prophets and the major prophets, and Isaiah being one of those major prophets, Daniel, uh, the story of the writing on the wall at the Feast of Belshazzar. These are prophets, and they seem to be sort of like uh, what Carl Jung, a psychologist, would refer to as the sage archetype, right? Sort of a shamanistic medicine man, maybe a pastor or preacher, maybe a soothsayer, a fortune teller of some kind, a seer. We see prophets mentioned many times uh, in biblical text, and they, like I mentioned with Daniel, sort of seem to be people that see the writing on the wall, right? Uh, so <clears throat> interesting. When you hear sage, you almost think mystical, but it's really, if you look into it, just more of a philosopher-type person, right? Somebody enlightened that views the world maybe slightly in a different way. So... We know that uh, during this time that the king in Egypt had been trying to orchestrate a revolt, okay? Um, the, Egypt, the Egyptians had not been conquered by the Assyrians militarily, but they were feeling the economic squeeze of the Assyrians, okay? So um, their alliance is being proposed in 735 Ahaz, the king of Judah, okay? And it's, it's this time that Israel and Judah is split. The United Hebrew Monarchy has gone in two directions, and he, um, Ahaz, king of Judah, declines this Egyptian king's request to join in uh, in rebelling against Tiglath-Pileser, uh, and instead Judah starts paying tribute to the Assyrians. Okay, so what happens next is uh, Tiglath-Pileser launches his second Assyrian campaign. This is between 734 and 733 B.C., 
This is when he defeats the Assyrians, or I'm sorry, the Assyrians defeat the Syrians. Let's not get confused there. And um, also the king of Israel who had rode up, uh, rose up in revolt. Tiglath-Pileser also conquers the Armenians um, who lived in the state of Aram and uh, also uh, destroyed and defeated the uh, city of Damascus, one of the world's oldest cities. Uh, and this was a caravan route between Egypt and Mesopotamia, so a very um, strategic city. So it was taken over by the Assyrians. Now, um, also Tiglath-Pileser conquers the Phoenicians, uh, captures their capital of Tyre, their shipbuilding culture. Um, could be a short podcast on them uh, in the future. And then Tiglath-Pileser is not able, though, to conquer the Hebrews. Okay, so he's not able to quite get to them, but we're going to see some um, things tick up between uh, the the Israelites that are in Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah and Benjamin there. Uh, we're going to see them uh, get laid siege to here shortly, okay? Now, um, the kingdom of Judah, Right, and that's uh, named after a tribe. And again, these are Judah and Benjamin. These two tribes stay, uh, uh, become the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem after the monarchy splits. Okay, so Judah is still paying tribute to the Assyrians in the reign of one of their new kings, Shalmaneser V. He's on the throne from 727 to 722 BC. He only reigned for five years, uh, didn't leave a lot of records, but uh, we know he attacked the kingdom of Israel in Samaria after um, Hosea, 733 to 722, the last king of Israel, rebelled against the Assyrians. And Israel falls as a result of this rebellion in 722 B.C. Okay, Now, while Shalmaneser V is laying siege to um, the kingdom of Israel, uh, there's some sort of overthrow or a death. He maybe dies in the siege. Maybe there's a coup d'etat, uh, an overthrow of his government. But we aren't sh quite sure how or why he died, but he's succeeded by a man named Sargon II. Okay, And this is undoubtedly a nod to the founder of the Akkadian dynasty in Mesopotamia. Uh, Sargon built arguably the first great empire in history when he unifies uh, all of Mesopotamia. We mentioned that previously uh, with uh, Sargon the Great or Sargon of Akkad, okay? Now, this is Sargon of the Assyrians that we're discussing. And um, he is going to reign, some date is reign 725 to 704, some date at 722 to 705. And we feel like he's some sort of a usurper. Okay, he comes to power while the siege of uh, Samaria is taking place, captures Samaria in 722, conquers the whole kingdom of Israel. So um, this is the 10 tribes, right? So 10 tribes split off of the 12 tribes and went to Samaria. This is where the term the Good Samaritan comes from. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, King Hosea is the last king on the throne, the last king of Israel who reigns between 733 and 722. Okay, uh, Sargon, who oversees the deportation and repopulation of the ten tribes of Israel, and he forces them uh, to go to Nineveh, where they uh, 
sort of become known as the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. There's lots of theories on what happened to these people after this, but uh, pretty much, as far as we know, they disappeared from the history books forever as, as a, a major cultural group. Survivors became slaves. We're talking four to five million Israelites are spread all throughout the Assyrian Empire after this event. So that's uh, <clears throat> Sargon sort of oversees this. Sargon had not conquered Judah, and he never attacks Jerusalem, right? He ends up having to deal with problems uh, in the east and the west uh, during his reign. A guy named Merodach Baladin, right, kind of reminds me of Beric Dondarrion from Game of Thrones for some reason. But Merodach Baladin, he is a native Chaldean or Chaldean, and he is supported by a group in the Mesopotamia called the Elamites. Uh, Merodach Baladin seizes Babylon, holds it for 10 years, right? And this is a time when Sargon is um, looking at the king of Judah, Hezekiah. Okay, he is the problem to the West. All right, he is uh, Hezekiah is in power from 715 to um, <clears throat> 680s, right? And this is also going on. Shabaka is the king of Egypt and requested Hezekiah participate in the revolt. So we have that kind of going on again. Hezekiah refuses this uh, to participate in a revolt with Shabaka, but others did participate with the Egyptians in a revolt. And this pulls Sargon into that part of the country. So, uh, Sargon attacks Ashdod in 713. Uh, he conquers Egypt in 710. And this is when Hezekiah begins the construction of a really awesome engineering feat of the ancient world in Hezekiah's tunnel, okay? I'm going to kind of go into that from a little different perspective here in a moment and give you one of my interpretations. But in 705, um, Sargon, of, uh, Sargon dies, and he is succeeded by his son, a guy named Sennacherib, and... Um, it's also uh, during this regime change, during this uh, the the Syrian uh, reign, moving from Sargon to Sennacherib, that Hezekiah stops making tribute payments, and in doing so, he's in open rebellion against the Assyrians. So, let's talk about the reign of Sennacherib, and this will be probably the coolest part of this podcast, my favorite part. So. <clears throat> King Sennacherib, 705 to 681, okay? He is um, in the very beginning of his reign when Merodach Baladin retakes Babylon. Also, Hezekiah, king of Judah, and Egypt all rise up in revolt against the Assyrians as Sennacherib's coming to the throne. So Sennacherib's got a lot to deal with, and ultimately, eventually, it's probably all of his uh, dealings are what gets him assassinated. So... Uh, Merodach Baladin's trying to ally with Hezekiah uh, during this time. And it's also during this time that Nineveh is made the capital of Assyria. It's a 120,000-person population of Assyrian citizens at this city. And Nineveh is the largest city in the ancient world by this time. Also, uh, infamously starting to be called the Bloody City. Sennacherib launches his Syrian campaign and takes Phoenicia, Syria, and several cities associated with the kingdom of Judah. He also lays siege to Lachish. This is a major city south of Jerusalem and north of Egypt, 
and is like a buffer zone between Egypt and Jerusalem. The Assyrian depictions of this siege show the Assyrians using siege towers and a man-made siege ramp, uh, which is still, uh, can be s- still seen at this site today. Uh, Sennacherib is, uh, has a major objective of conquering Judah, and after Lachish falls, Hezekiah asks to begin paying tribute again. Okay, Now, this is where um, this sort of crosses over with the timeline of this ruler, Shabiktu. Okay, He's the ruler of, <coughs> of, um, in Egypt, and um, we believe that he rules in Lower Egypt, and Upper Egypt is controlled by a man named Taharka, right? So, Shabitku asked Taharka for help, right? And um, Sennacherib believed that um, Sennacherib is basically believed that the Egyptians are coming to help Hezekiah, okay? So, Sennacherib uh, also, this time, takes another city strategically located between these two groups, the Egyptians and the Israelite named Libna, okay? Uh, then he threatens Jerusalem. He's starting to uh, talk about what he's going to do to Hezekiah and threatening him in um, sort of very, um, very uh, tense time for Hezekiah and the Hebrew people. So in 701, Sennacherib launches an attack on Jerusalem. He surrounds the entire city. Okay, And this may or may not have been a total failure. Right, depending on which of the sources you consult, and there's three accounts of this source, and uh, I'm going to kind of show you where Shabiktu comes into the picture. And um, the first uh, account of this source is going to come from something called Sennacherib's Prism. Okay, it's sort of a hexagonal, uh, hexagonal, hexagonal column. There we go, with cuneiform writing on it. Okay, so this details some of his campaigns, particularly the Jerusalem campaign, okay? So it says, Because Hezekiah, king of Judah, would not submit to my yoke, I came up against him, and by force of arms and by the might of my power, I took 46 of his strong fenced cities. And of the smaller towns which were scattered about, I took and plundered a countless number. From these places I took and carried off 200,156 persons. Very precise number old and young, male and female, together with horses and mules, asses, camels, oxen, and sheep, a countless multitude. And Hezekiah himself I shut up in Jerusalem, his capital, like a bird in a cage, building towers around the city to hem him in and raising banks of earth against the gates so as to prevent escape. Then upon Hezekiah there fell the fear of the power of my arms, and he sent out to me the chiefs and elders of Jerusalem with 39 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver, and the diverse treasures and rich and immense booty. All these things were brought to me at Nineveh, the seat of my government. This is the official Assyrian account, mind you, of the siege of Jerusalem from Sennacherib's prism. Okay, we have two other accounts, and I'll kind of uh, go over um, the biblical account, the account of Herodotus, and then my interpretation of the events. Okay, so um, let's 
you know, look at that is that um, we don't see anything about in this source from Sennacherib's prism. Of course, he's the one writing the history about his people getting sick during the siege of Jerusalem. And there seems to be a possible outbreak of some sort of plague during this time, okay? So let's look at what Herodotus, he's the father of history, he's known as the guy that refers to Egypt as the gift of the Nile, and he uses Egyptian sources in telling this story, and this is where we hear a little bit about Shabiktu. So um, this is written a few hundred years after the fact, and it was told to Herodotus by Egyptian priests. Okay, so... When Sennacherib, king of the Arabians and the Assyrians, is kind of what uh, these people referred to as, marched his vast army into Egypt, the warriors, one and all, refused to come to Shabiktu's aid. On this, the monarch, greatly distressed, entered the inner sanctuary and before the image of God, bewailed the fate which impeded over him. Impeded over him. Impended over him. There we go. As he wept, he fell asleep and dreamed that the... God came and stood at his side, bidding him to be of good cheer and to go boldly forth to meet the Assyrian host, which would do him no hurt, as he himself would send those who should help him. Shabiktu, relying on this dream, this is very, you know, we see a lot about the interpretation of dreams during this time, collected such of the Egyptians as were willing to follow him who were none of them warriors, but traders, artisans, and market people. And with these marched to Pelusium, which commands the entrance into Egypt. This is the easternmost portion of the delta. And there they pitched this, uh, his camp. And the two armies lay here opposite one another. There came in the night a multitude of field mice, which devoured all the quivers and the bowstrings of the enemy, and ate the thongs by which they managed their shields." The next morning they commenced their fight, and great multitudes fell as they had no arms with which to defend themselves. There stands to this day in the temple of Vulcan a stone statue of Shabiktu with a mouse in his hand, an inscription that reads to this effect, Look at me and learn to reverence the gods. This is Herodotus's account. Okay? This could be the depiction of a plague, uh, field mice coming. This could serve as a metaphor. Mice carry disease. Uh, or, uh, you know, something else. Something happened here in which the Egyptians definitely attribute to divine intervention, okay? So, interesting. Um, maybe while uh, the Assyrians are camped there, the Egyptians uh, go up against them, but there's no warriors, so we think this might be a metaphor for disease, uh, something unexpected. So let's read the biblical account real quick. This was from 2 Kings 18, and it says this, And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord, the death angel, went out and killed the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nizork, I'm not really sure if that's how you say that or who Nizork is, just a Mesopotamian god. There are lots of them, especially by this time. And he has two sons, uh, Adra. Adramalelech and Sherezar, or Sherezar, and they both strike him down. 
and they then escape to the land of Ararat. Then they have a brother named Ezra Hayden who um, is going to come to prominence after um, Sennacherib is killed. There's going to be a little civil war, as we've seen before previously, between these three sons, okay? So here's an account from the seminar that I took on ancient Egypt, and this is my one of my professors, what he gave his class notes on, okay? And I def- distinctly remember him talking about Hezekiah the Jew being trapped like a caged bird, right? So that's actually an account from the prism uh, source that we mentioned. And um, Hezekiah, 715 to 687, is king of Judah. And when Jerusalem is attacked by Sennacherib, um, it's depicted as a total failure, all right? And the reason for this is the Hebrews had an endless supply of good drinking water by redirecting the spring of Gihon, which was outside the city walls, into the city through a tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel. This went through solid rock and rerouted into the city to something called the Pool of Siloam. So this ensured that they would have a large supply of good water inside the city while the Assyrians would not have good water outside the city. Sennacherib's men at some time during this uh, siege start suffering from a sickness, okay? Now, my, my professor told me that this is possibly typhoid fever based on his research, right? So, you know, interpret it as you will. The Hebrews said it was the angel of the Lord, the death angel, and it cut down the Assyrians. Regardless, Sennacherib is not able to capture Jerusalem, all right? And the Assyrians are... Um, not able able to uh, capture Judah, right? So after this, the Assyrians shift their attention on Egypt, and um, that is, you know, it's not it's not immediately that Sennacherib is assassinated after the campaign. He's in, in power for some time, dealing with Merodach Baladan, and then expanding and putting down revolts in southern Mesopotamia. And um, has some issues there, comes into conflict with the Elamites in the south and gets pretty dicey for him. Uh, And in 689, uh, Sennacherib destroys Babylon, okay? This is thought that this might have been something that led to his assassination in 681 B.C. by his two sons, after the assassination, civil war definitely erupts, and this will sort of lay the groundwork for the next Assyrian king to come to power, the third son, Ezra Hayden. He um, raises an army. Most of the Assyrians actually came to his cause anyway, and he becomes the next king of Assyria from 681 to 669 B.C., and this is Ezra Hayden. So Ezra Hayden is the Assyrian king who inherits the kingdom after his father is assassinated by his two brothers. Um, Again, it's likely due to the uh, destruction of Babylon by uh, Sennacherib. And uh, Ezra Hayden rebuilds Babylon during his reign, wins uh, a lot of loyalty from the Babylonians in doing so. And Ezra Hayden then invades Media. And this provokes them in the long term. It's the medias, the medes, the medians, the medes, and the 
Chaldeans or the Chaldeans, who eventually will revolt against the Assyrians and lead to uh, the downfall of the Assyrian Empire. Okay, so um, also Ezra Hayden begins uh, launching a campaign into Egypt. His first attack is repelled by Taharqa. He is uh, the king in Upper Egypt, and um, when Shabiktu and again on Taharqa and Shabiktu, the their um, there's some some uncertainties. Uh, when Shabiktu dies, Taharqa becomes the ruler over all of Egypt. This is one thing that we are we are told, right? Um, so uh, Ezra Hayden he is able to uh, eventually defeat Taharqa on his second attempt to take the Nile Delta. Uh, he also makes it as far as Memphis by 671 BC. Okay, uh, in 669, Tarka returns and recovers Upper Egypt in the south while the Assyrians maintained their hold on the delta. So Ezra Hayden uh, dies during an expedition to Egypt and leaves his son, Ashurbanipal, as his successor. Right? So talk about the reign of Ashurbanipal III, 668 to 626 BC. He is the most powerful Assyrian king launches a full-scale invasion of Egypt early in his reign and attacks the Delta, captures Avaris, then the rest of the Delta. Then he captures Memphis. This enables him to continue upstream, capture Thebes, and uh, eventually capture the city of the capital city of the Kushites. Taharqa, still in the picture, organizes a rebellion among the princes in Lower Egypt, and at that point, Ashurbanipal installs Necho I as royal governor in Egypt uh, after he punishes this rebellion. <clears throat> in 664, Ashurbanipal res- uh, returns, destroys and sacks Thebes. This is uh, probably not a good thing to do. It's sort of a holy city at the time. Ashurbanipal uh, expands his border to the first cataract, then um, in doing so, pretty much has expanded Assyria to its greatest extent. All right. Ashurbanipal is uh, famous for a few reasons. Um, it's really the grass great warrior king, but this is probably the most notable thing from his reign. Ashurbanipal builds the world's largest library in Nineveh at the time. It contained 22,000 clay tablets. This was discovered in 1946 by Austin Henry Layard. And um, once we were able to decipher and read cuneiform, we're able to see what's going on uh, with the Assyrians a lot more, right? This is like uh, allowed us to know that the Assyrians that were discussed in the Bible um, were an actual people that had lived. Before this time, there's a lot of speculation, not enough sources. So this library contained tablets on military tactics, uh, medicinal health for soldiers. There were 500 drugs that had been learned from conquering the Egyptians and that were imported from the Egyptian School of Medicine at Memphis. There's a big subsection on maps, uh, and they were the most accurate maps to date that could be found. They had latitudes and longitudes. Uh, also, the um, Epic of Gilgamesh and the Babylonian creation epic of Enuma Elish are all found here in 1848. So before that time, we didn't know that there was 
almost an identical account of the biblical flood of Noah with a guy named Nepistrum in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now we do. There's also a lot of parallels between Enuma Elish and between the um, Genesis creation epic. So Ashurbanipal depicts himself as a priest and a king, not just a king. He introduced the best system the ancient world has seen for roads. So um, all of these things prove him to be a great administrator. He appoints royal governors for new territories. Uh, and he had typically always uh, selected Assyrians. But um, he appoints an Egyptian nobleman uh, who's very convincing, charismatic, named Somtik or Somaticus. Okay, he's granted a conference to Ashurbanipal and proposes that he be appointed uh, governor and royal governor of Egypt. He knew, he knew the local people and said that the administration would be easier should he be allowed to rule the Egyptian people. He's very persuasive, and in, uh, he convinces Ashurbanipal to let him become the royal governor. So this allows Somaticus I, or Somtik I, to become the patriarch, really, of the 26th dynasty in Egypt. This is called the Said dynasty. So let's talk about Somtik and the Assyrians, okay? Um, <clears throat> there are some issues when uh, Somtik is first uh, first installed with uh, rebellions against Ashurbanipal by the Elamites, the Phoenicians, Philistia, uh, Judea, Syria, Media, and Ashurbanipal puts them all down. Uh, he was the... <clears throat> It, it's interesting to note, too, that Somtik is the first Egyptian in the Assyrian Empire who is appointed in any sort of capacity to make decisions, okay? Um, now, hundreds of years after successful reign by the Assyrians um, and this, the new Assyrian Empire has been around for a while, right? Uh, rebellion breaks out in 614. Previously, Ashurbanipal has died in 627, and the Assyrians are plunged into a time of civil war in which Ashurbanipal's two sons are vying for the throne over a five-year period, okay? So this has been kind of a reoccurring theme. We see um, these um, sons sort of uh, causing civil war a couple of times throughout the Assyrians' history. And... Um, this uh, leads these two sons vying for control. Their names are Sinshar, Iskun, and or Siracus. Uh, he emerges as the triumphant uh, son and the next Assyrian king. And uh, in his time there, uh, he has to deal with the Medes, east of the Tigris, the Chaldeans from Babylon and the lower Euphrates in their rebellions. Uh, they're very fearful of the Assyrians. In 612, these two native Mesopotamian cultures band together to destroy the city of Nineveh and bring about an end to the Assyrian Empire. The Chaldeans had been slaves to the Assyrians previously, and they had, a, they had an axe to grind. The Chaldeans also, um, after this, established their capital of Babylon, beginning the Neo or New Babylonian period, right? This is where I start talking about Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in my in my courses that I teach, and I'm sure I'll do a podcast over that eventually. In 615 BC, the Medians and the Babylonians march in on Asher and destroy it. 
in uh, 614, and in 612, the city of Nineveh, the bloody city, is completely destroyed. Somtik had remained royal governor in Egypt, and uh, after the Assyrians are out of the picture, he is able to become pharaoh in Egypt. And this new dynasty will be in place for some time. Somtik uh, forms an alliance with the Libyans uh, during this time, focuses on trade and commerce, defends the Delta, expands trading with a major Greek city-state uh, called Miletus, and uh, this is a cultural center for the uh, Greek city-states. And um, we also have Necho II. Okay, he comes in after Somaticus 610 to 5. 95 is the last effective ruler to uh, rule from the 26th dynasty and uh, a few things about him. So after the Syrian Empire falls, Necho II, or Necho, spelled Necho, takes uh, control of Egypt, very competent, comes to power in 610. He takes over Palestine, reestablishes the Egyptian navy, but he's the last strong ruler from this dynasty. The Chaldeans are consolidating power all over Mesopotamia during his reign, and he is followed by a succession of weak kings, all right? There's growing problems with Egyptian soldiers, Libyan mercenaries. It's not the first time that's been a condition that's going on, and it's going to lead to the end of the 26th dynasty in Egypt. Okay, so I'm able to talk about the 25th and 26th dynasties here uh, through... Uh, discussing the Assyrians, and, you know, the Assyrians are just a good uh, cultural group to discuss after you learn about Mesopotamia and Egypt. Uh, when, I first, when I teach my courses, I do a block over prehistory, Mesopotamian history, and Egyptian history. Then I go to the Assyrians, the Neo-Babylonians, and the Persian empires, right? Uh, and then on to Greece and Rome. So if you were interested in podcasts which will be pulled from the ancient world probably everything i just mentioned will become a podcast at some point right so that's the assyrian empire that is my overview of history's cruelest people it uh, took about an hour and 30 minutes to get through all that uh, i appreciate all of you for watching i'm doing this uh while uh teaching classes and doing things throughout the day i've had to stop my recording a few times but Hopefully it is of quality and you guys enjoyed this. Uh, leave me any questions you may have in the comments. And uh, please subscribe to uh, Life Unraveled podcast on YouTube. Uh, we're also on iTunes and uh, elsewhere hosted through Podbean. So um, please uh, give us a, a subscription and a listen and help us uh, grow the podcast audience in doing so. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, stay tuned for more History Unraveled podcast uh, as I am releasing them uh, somewhat weekly. The last two or three weeks, I've been able to uh, start getting my history podcast out. So thanks again for listening, everyone. We will see you soon.